none of us really care about bringing gold or platinum back to the planet. I mean, it's nice stuff, but that's not what you know drives you. Right. What we want to do is build gigantic space stations there. And, uh, you know, precious metals make a good way of doing that because they are, you know, they are ch- cheaper to put into space as it were than, it, than their actual value is. But more importantly, you don't actually have to spend, you know, thousands of dollars per kilogram to send stuff back to Earth from an asteroid that you've mined there. You're spending it all on the equipment to go out there, the personnel to go out there. That stuff can take years coming home for all you care, so you can get whatever Delta V you want. We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project. Today we're back in the world of space again, and I am very excited to have my guest, Isaac Arthur, who runs what I consider to be the best space explainer channel on YouTube. I've watched over the last year or so as his uh, subscriber count has been going up, and it's well-deserved because every week he comes up with some amazing piece of content. And if you want to learn, get into the stream of what going on in space and and new ideas and that from anything from civilizations at the end of time when the universe and energy is winding down to growing stuff in space and also the practical realities of what we're going to be talking about today the nuts and bolts of of space and uh, becoming a spacefaring culture i highly recommend you check isaac's channel out so thanks for being here Thanks for having me on, Jason. Really appreciate it. Uh, I was just telling Isaac before the the show started, we started recording. uh, I waited a year following Isaac to be able to ask him, to to feel that I had this dream to ask him, hey, would you like to be on the show? And then we waited about, I think, around 45 days just to be able to get this moment. So for those of you who are out there and you have a dream, be willing to put in the time and wait and it can happen for you. You know, it's, it's really important to be able to commit to something. <clears throat> so what I thought we might talk about today, Isaac, is kickstarting the space industry. Uh, it, it's, it's uh, you know, most of the folks in, who are listening are business folks and, and they'll, mm-hmm. some of them have a, an interest in space and I'm hoping to get more of them interested in space by showing them what's possible, right? What's coming up next. So I thought this would be a great topic. So what, what does it mean kickstarting the space industry? I mean, we're in a situation now where uh, the public funding grant teat from NASA is kind of not being the big thing anymore. That used to be the big funding source, right? And now we're moving into an era where private industry is actually getting involved in doing launches and, and that kind of a thing. So tell us a little bit about the situation as it is. Oh, sure. Where space is concerned, the general feeling is we need a lot more private sector investment to ever really make it uh, snowball or kickstart into something people are really doing, not just this thing where we send a few people up into space or a few satellites. Now, of course, to some degree, we already have that because the science, you know, we spend about a trillion dollars a year on R&D. So that is an economic sector all by itself. You could fund a lot of space exploration and expansion just by doing R&D, things we can make up there or design up there and bring home. And of course, the military or surveillance or communications aspects, those are, those are real piece of the economy already. But what we all really want is to be building homes up there, building large factories up there, building a civilization up there. The pioneering spirit especially comes to mind and we want to get up there. But the problem is it's got this constant catch-22 where it's like, this will work and will make tons of stuff for us if we have X in place. If we have X in place, that will work if we just have Y in place. When did you say we need X to make Y? And then when we Y for X, you need all these things to actually make it viable and they all rely on each other. Mm-hmm. And now the idea is once you get one of those kind of to fall into place, it will basically expand into everything else and all of a sudden all these things will start to work. 
And it, that could be done gradually with minor improvement. We are getting there. In some ways, you could say we already kickstarted space um, as soon as we started turning into an economic front with you know, communications. But um, we don't feel like we're there yet. We don't feel like we're on a route that's going to snowball anytime soon. What we want is that snowball. Mm-hmm. So we started trying to look at what sort of sectors of the economy had enough money in them that an improvement that worked in space specifically or was tied to space would actually be enough to fund the whole thing. And our first one of choice was the energy sector because that's a multi-trillion dollar sector. It's even bigger than the R&D. So if you could make space a power source, that makes it really appealing. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that's all you need to fund it right there. If you can find something that will get you, you know, a kilowatt hour at the house or a mile per gallon at the car, cheaper than what we do right now. And that's the problem. It doesn't have to be cheaper right away. We, we often do, of course, do certain substations on research and R&D. But it has to, in the long run, be able to stand on its own two feet as a better option. And that's going to be true for any of the other ones we look at, like precious metals and commodities. People tend to think it's very expensive to go to space, and it is. But not so expensive that if we saw a big pile of gold balls on the moon, we couldn't actually go there, pick those up, bring them home, and actually make a profit. You know, it costs a lot of money to move things back and forth to space, but it's actually pretty cheap to move them home. So that's the other one that we often look at besides power production, which we can get back to, is mining precious metals and hoping the infrastructure set up in bringing those home to Earth also lets you mine the basic construction materials and resources we need for a lot of these other things. Then we have a third one, which we discussed, that kind of ties into it also to power and to propulsion, is nuclear. It is so unwelcome on the planet, unfortunately, um, though with some legitimate concerns, but nobody really minds if you put nukes in space, except there are, of course, treaties banning that at the moment. It's a great propulsion system away from Earth. So that might work very well with asteroids, especially if they turn out to have fissile material. We might better actually economically mine things like platinum and bring them back to Earth cheaper than mining them from existing known sources. And that would be a Kickstarter type of event. And those are what we tend to look for in these uh, because, of course, it could end up being a black swan, something we don't see until afterwards, but we can't predict those, of course. So we try to see which ones we've got available. Which one did you want to touch on for us, I suppose, would be the question. Right. right. Well, I, I guess there's a saying in business, uh, mm-hmm. pioneers starve and settlers prosper. <laughs> so nobody, and we're seeing this exactly in, in this uh, space, you know, near Earth space exploration thing where nobody wants to be the pioneers and starve. But lots of people would want to rush up there and be a settler. But as you say, there is a kind of stepping stone arrangement uh, where we need some stuff mm-hmm. to go build uh, what I have in mind orbital construction platforms mm-hmm. yes. and, and asteroid mining. Those are two areas that I really want to get into. And of course, we do have some great examples from history, uh, the precious metals thing. You know, I would not expect, you know, gold discovered in 1849 to lead to Silicon Valley. Uh, And that's an example there. And of course, all that area was settled in the first place because those pioneers, many of them, of course, did starve. Uh, And of course, many businesses that have tried to go into this often with more enthusiasm than the business sense uh, have also gone out of place. There's plenty of people who want to be the pioneers. But, you know, cooler heads prevailing, I don't really want to sink billions of dollars into something that's got no return either, because right. not only is it wasted money, it makes it so much harder to get startup capital down the road, either from the government or from the private sector. Right. So energy <laughs> production in space, in orbit, very important, possibly the first stepping stone. 
Uh, I remember when I, when I had Adam Crowell on the first time, there's a new episode with him that we just recorded a day or two ago. Uh, he, he mentioned we were joking about uh, lasers in space and whatnot. And he was like, well, I don't think the politicians would like uh, high-powered lasers pointed towards uh, Earth's surface here. That's so, the way I thought about it for a long time, too. But uh, the thing is, you wouldn't actually be using lasers for it. You'd be using microwaves. And those are actually pretty harmless. It's, it's hard for folks to remember that the microwaves that cook your food Right. Oh, the same exact same frequency that we use for our Wi-Fi. Hmm. Uh, the thing is, it's not like it's that much more intense either. Your microwave is, of course, two or times stronger than a five-watt transmitter, but that's not what it is. Beams of light move at nearly light speed. Microwaves can go through all sorts of stuff, hmm. but if they're shielded against a reflective material, it's going to bounce around in there millions of times a second, and it gets absorbed. Whereas when it's just going through your house, almost all of those will go right through you. So you can beam microwaves down at the surface of the planet pretty safely. I think the ocean, that is around 100 watts per square meter, which is a nice power supply when all we're talking about is chicken wire to mm. receive it. Rectennas are 87% efficient, very old school technology. Right. So the notion is you build the power plants up in space where they get perpetual sunlight or near perpetual if they're a little too close to Earth. They beam that down at a very high conversion rate. Uh, down to places that you could actually still be farming on or have as forested areas and uh, or with wildlife living in them that absorb this power. It does take a fair amount of space, so it's nice to use for crops. And they just convert it into the electrical grid and send it into the local places. And because if you're getting the power from satellites, they can bounce it around to wherever it needs it. Those will go through clouds in most places. And you're always going to have an angle so you can shoot to people at nighttime or you can shoot to who has a power need right now. So you could have thousands of satellites that were basically auctioning their power off constantly, and that's a market. You know? mm -hmm. And the nicest thing about it all is, the hardest thing about making these is the raw materials to get them up there, but they're all the kind of cheap stuff that's easy to refine on someplace like the moon. Mm. It doesn't require all that high of technology to melt down some aluminum, shine it up like a meal, and bounce it onto a much lighter and cheaper collector. So, Power satellites, relatively safe, very easy technology, not quite to the point where we could be launching them by any means. And of course, the best way would be to build them on the moon or source most of the material from the moon with a knock-on effect to industry there. But that one, I used to think it was a whole idea to beam power to the planet. But the more I looked into it, the more it actually seems like the best candidate for actually kickstarting space because it gives you all the advantages of solar without all the downsides of bad weather, which there isn't in space, darkness, no none of that in space, and lots of land usage, which, you know, solo, if you use a lot of it, is going to take up a lot of your good real estate you could probably do other things with. Except, of course, in deserts, but no one lives near a desert, and power still has to be moved. Right. So why aren't people doing it now, then, if it's, if it's such a straightforward and good idea? Always the question on that. Well, it actually has been looked at a lot in a very serious fashion, too. It's not a you know, strictly sci-fi thing. Lots of papers on this. Uh, we've already started doing basic R&D and prototyping and stuff like this up on the space station. We installed those solar arrays. But we have that problem that launch costs were too high. We don't really have the automation to be doing this stuff on the moon yet. So this is not something you can do in the next couple of years by any means. Right? But... Uh, you know, we need the automation to be able to mass produce the stuff on the moon in terms of the, the core heavy materials, not so much the critical components. And we need to be able to get the launch cost down on Earth or get the launch cost so low we could build them down on Earth. Mm -hmm. Ideally, you want to be doing most of your raw materials from the moon if possible, of course. Right. And those launch costs have been coming down. 
Now you would have to O and D and prototype the actual power satellites. There was, you know, I don't want to say that we could just throw that out tomorrow, but that is very basic technology. It's like designing a new smartphone at this point, not so much designing a smartphone in the first place. The key thing is what's that critical cost point? What's the tipping point that actually says, now we could actually launch these into space and, uh, or we could build these in space, whichever one comes first. So do launch costs keep dumbing down? Does power costs keep rising? Or do we get really good with automation? And of course, that can have a secondary effect too, because you get really good with automation. You don't actually need to build a lot of these things on the moon because we do have a lot of space on Earth not being used, and if we can build really cheap solar panels, then we don't actually need another power source, you know? Hmm. Or if somebody makes really good batteries, that's another one of those examples of a really good technology that might actually halt the development of another one. We want better batteries, but they might actually make certain types of technology on the planet much too easy, as it were, thus rendering the space ones a little bit redundant, in which case you need a new Kickstarter. Obviously, if we get better batteries, that's the best thing for us, but it might slow progress down on that front or make that particular option not viable. Hmm. Okay. There, there are <clears throat> things I like a lot about it because oh, yeah. you're, you're, let's say you do the, create a factory on the moon, right? Mm -hmm. uh, plan to do this you're actually creating a money producing asset as well while you're doing this it's not a well let's gamble on this and hope that it pays off yeah. you are actually creating something that feeds back into the economy your business right so i, I like that a lot let's move to asteroid mining mm -hmm. uh, which is <clears throat> my favorite topic uh, those who know me a little bit know that uh, when i was 16 i had a vision of myself running an asteroid mining company mm -hmm. and i shared this with people and was immediately told by uh, somebody well that's fantasy and uh, that that hurt my feelings <laughs> you know that kind of thing can shut you down and it shut me down for years and uh, and then i was looking around one day not too long ago and saw that there were two very large very real well funded companies mm -hmm. uh, doing you know, heading in this direction, right? Doing asteroid mining. And, and uh, so at that point I was like, huh, maybe my um, high school fantasy days can be revisited here with, with a big chunk of reality. Why don't I find out more about that, right? And the first thing you realize, there's a great book called Asteroid Mining 101, uh, is, is that the whole point is not to go out to the asteroid belt and, or find near earth asteroids and, and mine them and bring back those precious metals to earth. <clears throat> you don't need to do that. You can bring them into orbit and uh, create orbital construction platforms for making stuff up there. And mm -hmm. that, you know, this, well, I think the general idea is you would bring the precious metals back down to earth. Of mm -hmm. course, um, unless you had a very large population already up there. I, I mean, the desire for gold either for, you know, um, economic purposes, jewelry, or actual industrial use, we could certainly use a lot of that, and that's one thing at home. I'd say the same for platinum, palladium, and possibly some fissile materials. Um, but obviously, we don't need to bring iron back to Earth. Earth's got plenty of iron. Earth has more iron than all the other asteroids and moons in this system combined. Admittedly, <laughs> um, a lot of it's inconveniently located. Um, with the precious metals, though, that's the idea is that that's your early funding. That's your California 1849, 1849 thing. Once you get out there, that's when someone says, well, I got all this cheap gold, and now that we're here, I, I need food, clothing, tools, <laughs> you know, some place to sleep, you know, and, and that's where you get the, the knock-on effect, of course, to what we all actually want. Well, it's a little disingenuous. None of us really care about bringing gold or platinum back to the planet. I mean, it's nice stuff, but that's not what, you know, drives you. Right. What we want to do is build gigantic space stations there. 
And, uh, you know, precious metals make a good way of doing that because they are, you know, they are ch cheaper to put into space as it were than, it, than their actual value is. But more importantly, you don't actually have to spend, you know, thousands of dollars per kilogram to send stuff back to Earth from an asteroid that you've mined there. You're spending it all on the equipment to go out there, the personnel to go out there. That stuff can take years coming home for all you care, so you can get whatever Delta V you want. And uh, it's hard to steal stuff in space like that, so especially you got a little transponder on it. I think it'll be doing some interesting things with the speculation market, though, if somebody launches one of those. And it's like, we have 10,000 tons of palladium coming back. Uh, estimated date for arrival is this. What's that do to the markets? Mm -hmm. uh, although I think people really overest. I mean, the markets are not that fragile. The commodity markets certainly are temperamental. But um, some of you would say, well, we could dump 1,000 tons of gold on the market and say there's a lot more than that on the market. It was like 300,000 tons a year we mine right now. And that's new added gold. Uh, although I, don't quote me on that figure. Um, just because you find an asteroid that you can say has a million tons of gold in it, does not mean you're extracting that tomorrow, nor would you right. do so if you could. You'd stake a claim on that, you'd you know, say it was yours, and you'd set yourself up a mining operation, and you'd sell what was the best prices. It would cause a bit of a drop, you'd get supply, you know, that, that always gonna happen. But I can't see it you know, melting the market down. There would be a point where it would stabilize because it's still expensive to bring stuff home. So you know, that's why we wouldn't want to try to bring aluminum back to Earth, besides the fact that we have tons of it. It's never gonna be economic to do that. But the funny thing is it might actually be more economic to bring aluminum back from the asteroid belt than to get it off of Earth or Mars for right. building around Earth, uh, which seems so counterintuitive because orbit's only 100 miles up, whereas the asteroids are hundreds of millions of miles away. Right. But the gravity well to get away from the asteroid, for mm -hmm. our listeners, is much yeah. less than the Earth's. <laughs> so yeah. pushing I mean, that it's necessarily non-existent. Yeah. And you can just send it back because, you know, when you're in the asteroids, the sun is down. The Earth is down. You know, the sun is down from Earth once you're in orbit. So all you're doing is throwing it down a hole. It takes a long time to get there if you don't want to apply fuel, but it's metal. Yeah, <laughs> it can take its time. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm interested in the legalities. And again, you're not an attorney, but uh, like you say, go stake a claim on some asteroid, right? I mean, I know that in um, I think it's Luxembourg and that they're working on some legal agreements for space exploration. But I I don't pretend to understand it at all. Is there any light that you can shine on that? Um. To a limited degree. I am not a lawyer either, but the subject comes up a lot. And uh, the thing is with this is the, the Outer Space Treaty uh, was designed primarily to make sure nobody said, the moon is mine, uh, or I'm going to stick 100 ICBMs in orbit. Right. Uh, it was never meant to be a permanent treaty. It was not designed that way. This was a placeholder. Uh, you know, most of the countries involved had already been through their fair share of treaties and know that you don't try to do things like that in the long term. Um, there's no resistance to change yet. Um, there's just no motivation specifically yet to try to phrase a document. You know, so as I said, nobody's got a business plan yet. Until someone has a specific business plan that is going to violate the OST and require a change, there's no reason to make those changes when we still can't be too sure what they are. And then you drag, you know, tons of diplomats together and go through all sorts of parliaments and congresses to get a change, only to find out that it was the wrong one and now you set a bunch of precedents. So I don't see those treaties as a big deal. We have a lot of precedent historically for staking claims. And if people get too greedy about it, like if somebody says, that entire giant asteroid is ours because we stuck a flag on it, 
now. I mean, traditionally, you had to be producing. They, they would say farming was the old one, but that's, I mean, that's possible in space, but it's more likely, you know, mining, resource extraction. You'd have to expand that definition a bit beyond, you know, I'm farming this land. But I think that we, we would be able to make those amendments. And of course, not necessarily smoothly. I'm convinced we can do it, uh, but I, I would expect it to be a jumpy process. You know, okay. there's there will be international court uh, hearings <laughs> yeah. on things. Okay. Trillions of dollars and lots of national prestige. I, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that you'd see a lot of legal battles. <laughs> okay. Hopefully not war. Probably not. Wars in space at this stage would be... Oh, even on the ground, I'm saying, because once you involve national oh, yeah. prestige, that's a major yes. motivator. <laughs> uh, I mean, we do set out the same basic, uh, you know, um, a mad policy of mutually assured destruction, and it's even more so once you start putting stuff into space. There's no mm -hmm. such thing as an unarmed spaceship, just because they all carry around nuclear levels of power, even if they have non-nuclear power forces. Right. Um, not to say that everyone's going to suddenly turn peaceful, but you probably have a pretty high threshold because we still operate on that paradigm that it's so easy to blow something up and so expensive to build it. And so you usually don't want to get into a fight with someone because asymmetric war has, I mean, we didn't really have a lot of asymmetric war in the past because it wasn't really a good strategy. Nowadays, it's much more common because you can blow up a multi-billion dollar object with a couple of pounds of explosives. <laughs> so. Okay. One kind of neat marketing idea that the business people will probably enjoy that you had was, uh, and this might only work once, you pointed out, is putting uh, a, a shape in orbit that's a reflective uh, material that is the logo or the, mm -hmm. the name of, uh, <laughs> of the company, right? And getting a, a short-term hit uh, yeah. on, the, on the advertising. Yeah. I would just say that that's that's not advanced technology. You could do that right. right now. I mean, the space station is naked eye visible. Uh, you need to get a little bit bigger than that to actually uh, make it visible to the ground for folks, but not a lot more visible if you want to just have a resolution up that they can see the logo. Uh, and it only needs to be as thick as, you know, tinfoil. So, you know, you send up a couple hundred pounds of tinfoil and, and enough to cover a football field in it, and it expands out and floats. It won't last too long. It will, it will drift down out of orbit and burn up which makes it a little bit safer for deployment. Uh, and of course, if somebody does that, their logo is going all around the world and it's going to be followed by news cameras the first time. So that would be a, a, a very clever investment, at least on Paul slapping your logo on the side of the rocket, which is also, I'd imagine you see a lot of sponsorship that way of these things. Um, but the funny thing is that could actually have a longer presence because one of the only ways we can really come up with that looks like it can reliably control the weather is solar shades and mirrors. Mm. And uh, those would be things you'd want to deploy very temporarily. A gigantic thin thing of tinfoil that you can use to help diffuse one hurricane or one you know, bad weather pattern mm. uh, would be a very expensive object. Worth it to avoid the destruction, presumably. Um, but I certainly wouldn't mind having my corporate logo be the, the shape of the mirror that was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that might be worth the cost alone, but certainly uh, to be you know, a sponsor of the, uh, the uh, anti-Katrina shade 2019 or something, you know? Right. Well, um, I can see the insurance companies paying for something like that hmm? right. rather, than, rather than paying out millions and millions of people or hundreds of thousands yeah. of people. And this is interestingly not a space or launch technology issue. And putting one up is very easy. It's what do you do with it to put it in the right place. So this is not reliant on improvements in space technology. It's reliant on improvements in weather modeling. We get better at weather modeling because right now we could shine a beam down on a hurricane, but we wouldn't know where to put it to diffuse it, you know, ideally. You want an optimum launch on that, and that's strictly meteorology. Someone cracks that one, we start getting good weather forecasting. 
And all of a sudden, you have a huge new market that's in no way dependent on the space industry's development. Uh, that can you say, we need to buy a pod that's going to launch 50 tons of Mio into space at this location. Uh, and there's really not that much sophistication to a process like that in terms of device. It's just a big Mio or a shade. So... <laughs> Maybe I should get into that business. <laughs> now, that, of course, would be all entirely dependent on weather modeling, which, you know, right. it doesn't get kicked around much as, a, um, as an investment area. I mean, I'm not really sure what the progress on that is. It's a lot of chaos in trying to model that, but that would obviously be a very big thing to, uh, in terms of its impact. Not sure about its profitability, of course, because weather modeling is probably not something you can market very well, but certainly the impact of it on mm -hmm. the economy would be huge, staggering. So. Yeah. Huh. Well, I'll have to look into that. One of the other kickstarting things uh, that is actually happening right now is the funding of small satellites and uh, whole fleets of these are gonna be thrown up into orbit and what they are are uh, small telescopes. And the whole point there is to inventory all these near earth asteroids and see what have we got and do the spectrometer analysis and find out chemically, organically, what's in there, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and make, a, make an inventory of what we should go get first, right? You know, there's a, there's a hey, this, is, this asteroid's worth X amount and this one's worth 10X, let's go after mm -hmm. that one first. Yeah. Uh, and so this is, this is actually happening. Uh, but you've talked also about space-based telescopes, uh, larger items, maybe on the far side of the moon or something like that. How, how are these um, affecting that Kickstarter idea? They have, I mean, as with a lot of these things, we say, well, what's economically productive? And uh, obviously, Silicon Valley is economically productive, and that was all done off of resource. They didn't actually produce that much of tangible goods. There's a lot of money to be had in R&D that people are willing to invest in. It's hard, though, for me to see that anybody would say, I want to you know, invest in a giant telescope on the backside of the moon. But it is easy to see the scientific community getting the governments to pay for that, and once it's there then it needs you know, to be built and someone gets to make money on that and it needs facilities around it. And of course, it becomes cheaper to operate a facility nearby. If I want to build a mining station nearby, um, it's cheaper now because that telescope's there unless they run me off because I'm making noise. So that, that is an example of how, and obviously an effect like that, you know, you've got a little telescope there and now there's an economy built around it because it's cheaper to do unrelated things even there. Hmm. Um, but with the telescopes, that I would say is more in, in the zone of uh, you know, just general scientific knowledge. Uh, it would probably have advantages down the road. We've tended to see those, but I wouldn't see any immediate advantage to that. Oh, that's a possible Kickstarter, ironically enough, not economically, but in the sense that if we suddenly build up, you know, we get a weird signal tomorrow from an alien source or some concern about something coming towards like an asteroid uh, that might hit the planet. Those are excuses to go build huge telescopes or huge weapon platforms up there in a hurry. And then when they've got all that, you know, rapidly assembled equipment in place, that's you've thrown trillions of dollars of putting together quickly. It's just sitting there not doing anything now that the crisis is done. And, uh, you know, now you have that economy basically forced into place there and people are going to have to find ways to take advantage of that. So that is a way you could get a Kickstarter event. We suddenly have to do it. And now all the infrastructure is in place, as well as all the jobs to make that infrastructure. So, right. Okay. Let's let's finish up here. Uh, what? Let's let's hear your picture, your mental picture of what a kickstarted space industry looks like. What are all the goodies that could be in it? Hmm. 
Um, power satellites, again, is probably my best bet on that. Asteroid mining with nuclear or atomic drives would hopefully also improve our safety for using those on Earth and get people more comfortable with it. Um, probably a lot of aluminum production off the moon because uh, you have a very cheap source of electricity there, which is the big bottleneck there. It would be seasonal as well every two weeks, but you produce heavily during that time. Um, and that could actually potentially be something where it might be cheaper to throw it back down off, but I'd imagine even then you'd be beaming power down to aluminum plants. Um, and then from there, you'd start seeing those secondary things like space hotels. Those might start beforehand because there's, there's a small luxury market for it, but I, you could start getting a big development of permanent or long-term uh, you know, temporary residences up there. And that is when you start seeing more of an economic effect coming on around those. But I think that you would probably see at least one or two large rotating space stations to simulate gravity once you get one of these Kickstarters up there for the maintenance teams, for the long-term science groups, for the miners coming back and forth. And, <clears throat> and when we have those, it also starts to give us the ability to tell what kind of medical knowledge we need to deal with low gravity you know, in a good way. So I would suspect that whichever one comes of these various Kickstarters, it's quite likely to be a black swan. Um, uh, although I'll say I predicted in advance, you know, regardless, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I am quite sure that whatever it is or whatever they are, it will be accompanied by a relatively large rotating space station. Probably not one of the big O'Neills to begin with, uh, like Gateway's been putting together one of the more modest ones. And I would think that we'll see something like that get built inside the next 30 years just because things will fall into place. We got the technology for it. Is there a need? And uh, thus far, there hasn't been much of a need for a rotating section for any of these things. Awesome. So that, that's the semi-complete picture. Uh, <laughs> there, there will be more going on. And also just being out there and having this stuff will enable us to come up with new horizons, right? You'll see farther and, uh, and come up with new goals after that. Well, amazing. Uh, Isaac, where can people find out more about you? Obviously, you can go look at your YouTube channel. Well, IsaacArthur.net, they might want to wait a day or two because we've just changed the website over. And of course, we're available <coughs> on YouTube. It's just Isaac Arthur. Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur. We have an episode every Thursday morning. Right. And that is, as I've said, one of the great explainer channels <laughs> of the age. I've learned a ton. Uh, thanks for being on, Isaac. I hope you'll return for uh, another episode in the future. I'd be glad to, Jason. And uh, appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me on.